0: This is episode number 515 with Chris Wu, product consultant and co founder of both Write, Speak, Code and Hacks Hackers. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is John Crone, a chief data scientist and best selling author on deep learning. Each week, we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. Today's episode is a first ever for the program. The episode was recorded with me in person together with the guest. My brave guinea pig for this in-person recording experiment is the inspiring and thoughtful Chris Wu. Chris is a consultant who specializes in product development and change management. For example, she helps companies embrace new technologies in a way that ensures employees are comfortable with the change and that the employees benefit from it. She's also a co-founder and active mentor in an organization called Write Speak Code, a group that promotes visibility and leadership of technologists from underrepresented genders. She's also a founding organizer of an organization called Hacks Hackers, which connects the journalism and software developer communities. She founded Hacks Hackers 12 years ago, and it has now grown to 70 chapters across five continents. In today's special in-person episode, Chris enlightens us on K-pop music, its origins, and its associated cultural movement. How the Write Speak Code and Hacks Hackers organizations she co founded leverage community to make a massive global impact for marginalized genders and journalism, respectively. How you too can either find or launch impactful communities that accelerate your career in the impact that you can make in the world. And Chris talks about her top resources, including social media accounts, blogs, and podcasts for staying abreast of the latest in data science and machine learning, whether you're a technical expert or not. Speaking of which, today's episode overall should appeal to anyone looking to make an impact, regardless of whether you're a technical expert or or not. (laughs) Alright, are you ready to experience the energy of this first ever live-filmed episode? Let's do it! Chris. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. It's so fun to be in person with you filming. Uh, I understand you didn't have too much of a commute to get here to film in my apartment in these COVID conditions.
1: Uh, no, it was just one train, long train ride right here. So it was great.
0: Nice. All right, so we were introduced to each other by Claudia Perlick, who was on episode number 437, but we know each other through a number of different avenues. So also Jared Lander, who is episode number 501, and Drew Conway, who's in episode number 511. So uh, one of the big connections there is that all of those people, including myself, are members of the open statistical programming community in New York, which you've been a part of for over a decade, I suppose. That's right, And so uh, most recently, we recorded a podcast episode at the R Conference, the New York R Conference, which is um, a spin-off, I guess, of the Open Statistical Programming community. And, um, and you did a talk at that same R Conference that we filmed the episode with Drew. So the topic at that conference was why the world loves K-pop. <laughs> so Chris, tell us a bit about what K-pop is. I understand it's from Korea, which is where the K comes from. I haven't listened to too much of it. I know Gangnam Style.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think a lot of people know Gangnam Style by now. (laughs)
0: Um, Yeah, so tell us a bit about K-pop and why it's so interesting to you, Um, and yeah, then we can get into your talk a bit as well.
1: Yeah, well, I think K-pop is really fascinating for lots of different reasons. Um, It started, uh, so, so it's a musical genre that originated in South Korea that was um, kind of planned for as a cultural export Ah. yeah and uh, so they you know k-pop you know people who've been studying it kind of mark the early 1990s i think 1992 or 1993 as the beginning of k-pop as a genre and then it just sort of has grown from there Um, because of youtube uh, being so open for people uh, you know. Folks from around the world could kind of like discover all sorts of musical artists, and then finally, when Gangnam Style hit, and I think what was it, twenty fifteen-ish? Yeah, around then. Yeah, that's that. That is when it went from something that like you know pockets of folks listened to to suddenly like everybody's like, what is this? Um, yeah, and so given its history, the fact that it is something that was planned for. Um, by the government and the fact that it's just so popular around the world, you know, BTS being like the number one Selling musical group worldwide um, Mm -hmm. I figured like, you know, this is a great opportunity to have like to look at Data and other artifacts and study it through R
0: Yeah, and another interesting fact, I guess about Asian music and something that surprised me so prior to filming this episode we talked about what could we cover on the show and one of the things that blew my mind that you brought up to me was how few musical artists, at least that I get exposed to uh, in places that I grew up—the U.S., Canada, uh, the U.K.—there are very, very few Asian artists. I struggle to think of more than a handful.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think um, it's really hard to break in, like in the West, as and you know, like as a non-English speaking. Artist, uh, just, I mean, obviously in the United States, we have like a huge community of people who love like Latin music or, or music that's like Spanish language. Um, but that said, like, okay, that's, you know, like, what about, what about the Asians, right? Like Asia is huge and, you know, East Asia as well It's like, just just so many people, but you mm-hmm. don't really, you know, like nobody's really hit the Billboard top 10 and stayed there for very long, let alone debuted at number one.
0: Right. This episode is brought to you by Super Data Science, yes, our online membership platform for transitioning into data science and the namesake of the podcast itself. In the Super Data Science platform, we recently launched our new 99-day data scientist study plan, a cheat sheet with week-by-week instructions to get you started as a data scientist in as few as 15 weeks. Each week, you complete tasks in four categories. The first is super data science courses to become familiar with the technical foundations of data science. The second is hands-on projects to fill up your portfolio and showcase your knowledge in your job applications. The third is a career toolkit with actions to help you stand out in your job hunting And the fourth is additional curated resources such as articles, books, and podcasts to expand your learning and stay up to date. To devise this curriculum, we sat down with some of the best data scientists as well as many of our most successful students and came up with the ideal 99-day data scientist study plan to teach you everything you need to succeed so you can skip the planning and simply focus on learning. We believe the program can be completed in 99 days and we challenge you to do it. Are you ready? Go to superdatascience.com challenge, download the 99-day study plan and use it with your Super Data Science subscription to get started as a data scientist in under 100 days. And now, let's get back to this amazing episode. So, interesting topic. And it sounds like there's opportunities to be analyzing some of these trends uh, with data because it sounds like, you know, things are starting to change, that we are starting to see some Asian artists like BTS that you mentioned you also recently mentioned to me an artist called Blackpink that I must admit I didn't know before, but shamefully, because they're enormous. Um, and so there's this change, and it looks like we can, yeah, we can examine some of these trends that are happening in the data. So that's what you talked about at the art conference. Tell us about uh, what you covered.
1: Yeah. So. so- I ended up kind of thinking about four different areas of possible exploration, and of course, this war is still huge. But one was looking at it just as a musical genre because it's so fast growing. Um, the I think it's the oh I forget the letters, but it's the international like body that represents recording labels around the world. And they said that um, in 2020, a record breaking year for K-pop drove South Korea to 44.8% growth. And the position is the fastest growing major music producing market in like of all of last year. Wow! Yeah. So uh, the second area that uh, is worthy of data exploration, I thought might be the fact that it is an economic engine. So by that, I mean, you know, it is a cultural export product, and um, they uh, like the numbers have been updated since I last looked. Uh, the South Korean music industry has produced an estimated five billion dollars of export value that's that was in 2019 right. so that's a ton right and it's yeah. not just music itself, but a lot of these um, musical artists right they're, uh, they themselves are acting um, or showing up in broadcasts they are representatives for various like life's life and lifestyle brands around the world so um you know k-pop's popularity has ripple effects into other industries and so you know i thought maybe there's a way that you can kind of explore how that's happening and you know do some network analysis for example Mm -hmm. um a third dimension for study is social phenomena Uh, and by that i mean um a lot like it's true in general that fan engagement is like the number one reason why any musical artist is successful and in the case of k-pop fans they are like super super organized yeah the fans
0: are super organized
1: (laughs) yeah (laughs) they're very it's almost like they operate like a collective right okay yeah and so they'll get together and when they hear word like you know when they hear word that their favorite artist is coming out with a new release um, they kind of get together and, and cooper- like, figure out cooperatively how to make sure their, their favorite artist gets to number one. Like, oh,
0: yeah. Yeah. wow, I see. That's interesting. That is an interesting social phenomenon. Mm-hmm.
1: So not only are the fans uh, organized for their favorite groups, they also organize for social and political causes. And so there is kind of an add-on effect in terms of the social phenomena there. Um, and I also want to mention, it's not just the fans, but the artists themselves are addressing all sorts of social, political, generational um, issues and questions in the music, too.
0: Very interesting. All right, very cool. So it's fast moving. Definitely some data we could track there. Cool idea around the network analysis of the economic engine and how the music industry ends up having ripple effects across other artistic and maybe even beyond artistic um, industries out of Asia. And then, yeah, this, the cultural impact is the third one. So you've got one more, right?
1: Yeah, and that one um, I was kind of thinking it's almost like a bridge between what we think of as the East and the West. Um, and, you know, in my talk, I talked, I, I spoke about it as being an East-West connector. So this is kind of looking at things like the fact that, you know, K-pop artists and non-Korean artists are aware of each other. Maybe a little bit more on, like, you know, the South Korean artist side. But that said, you know, you can see just by looking at Twitter alone or TikTok or you know, Instagram, choose your favorite. Social media platform, mm-hmm. and you can kind of see like they're tagging each other and talking to each other. You're also seeing them um, start to produce like collaborations. Uh, and then I think the other interesting thing is the businesses that are supporting them also have, um, you know, whether it's the agencies or uh, the the labels, right? They they have kind of business agreements or investments in other like labels and agencies around the world. And so you're starting to see from the business side, like how like globalization is happening. Um, Yeah, so I think that that's really interesting.
0: So it sounds like all of this investment, this decision from the top down by the South Korean government to create this global K-pop industry is working. And it is having big cultural impacts um, across the world, including here in the US. Mm -hmm. So super cool and definitely an interesting talk. So beyond your interest in K-pop, you also do other things with your day. <laughs> um, so you are the co-founder uh, and still a mentor of an organization called Right Speak Code. And so you co-founded that eight years ago. And this is a group that promotes marginalized genders in tech leadership, so tell us about RightSpeak Code, what it does, why you founded it, and maybe any kind of impactful use cases that have happened. Love to hear about it.
1: Um, Yeah. Well, uh, like you said, RightSpeak Code uh, was founded to promote the visibility and leadership um, of technologists with marginalized genders. Um, And it does that through peer-to-peer professional development. So, um, yeah, when we first got started, there were five of us who co-founded it. It was a you know, it was kind of a, hmm, I guess you know, like the feeling at the time was just you know, lots of really, uh, the, you weren't seeing many women, especially. Um, you know, we we started out with our focus on women um, because the conversation around marginalized genders hadn't really come to the forefront at that time. But women were not really being seen. At meetup talks, or giving conference talks, or right. you know, being the people who are like the the blogger to follow, right, or the medium post to fo- or, uh, poster to follow. So we figured, why not? You know, what if what if that was true? Because these people didn't know how to get started. Right,
0: right, right, right,
1: right. Yeah. So so the conference is really designed to help kind of handhold people through that process. It's a conference. Uh, well, we called it a conference, but it was very hands-on, so some people might call it a workshop. Yeah.
0: So like, you mean like the initial, the initial one, or it's a recurring workshop?
1: It was, Uh, so so the pilot, or yeah, the very first event was a conference, but the things that people were doing, rather than being like stage on stage, et cetera, right, was very much hands-on, so it was, in that sense, much more like a workshop.
0: Got it, got it, got it. Yeah. Got it. And then it's continued today to be a peer-to-peer network. I imagine it's continued through the pandemic, people working together remotely, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, it's also spawned, because of the success of every, you know, every year we'd been gathering together um, to do this, and because of the growth and the success of the program, it's also spawned local meetups as well. Um, so you, there's, there are a few alums who have gone through um, the curriculum who are just like this is so exciting. I want to bring this you know back to my you know my town my or my hometown and then start to kind of bring bring this knowledge and this skill to other people. yeah
0: cool. And yeah, so to break it down a little bit more, it the name of it, write speak code is very deliberately those are the three kind of main areas that this network helps with, right? so, um, yeah, you, you explained this uh, to me earlier, but uh, the right part is helping people to get started on writing open source code, right? Uh,
1: it's more um, sort of like thought leadership blogging or, yeah, you know, good, like, good, yeah, good, yeah good, just good. prose writing. So, yeah, yeah. Pro, prose writing with or without code, depending on what you want to do.
0: Yeah. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. And then the speak you kind of already alluded to is speaking at conferences, helping people get started with that. And so that includes things, right, like helping them be prepared to even apply. Uh, Yeah. Yeah,
1: Yeah. because, you know, a lot of people, and this is true in general, are like, I would love to, you know, I would love to give a talk at my local meetup. I'd love to give a talk at, like, you know, big whatever, like national, international conference, right? But they're like, I have no idea what to talk about. And so we do help folks with idea generation. And take them from that point of, like, we, you know, overall, like, the underlying tagline of write, speak, code has been own your expertise. Mm. And getting people to kind of embrace their knowledge, right, regardless of where they are in the spectrum of experience. And then to to generate ideas based on what they know, you know, what, what they know and what they feel confident about, even if the the thing that they feel confident about is, like, I don't actually know this thing, but I've been learning, right? And here's my process of learning it.
0: Right. Cool. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, So, yeah. So that's the write, the speak. And then there is the code. That's right. Okay. 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 Yes. I see. I see. So, yeah. So the write part is about writing blog posts, of course. And then the speak part is about speaking at conferences, and the code part is about coding. That's
1: right. <laughs> yeah, and, and that was um, you know, one of the biggest things that um, people may or may not acknowledge is that the, the technology that we use is powered by a lot of open source code. And open being that it's open source, you, anybody, can be a contributor. Mm-hmm. Um, and by being a contributor kind of shape the dynamic of you know what that code is capable of. So, teaching folks not just how to you know how to make your first pull request, but also teaching them because we're looking at an underrepresented group of people, right? And that technology is you know, the technology culture can be a little squidgy sometimes, right? Like helping people figure out like what are what are projects like how to evaluate what project or, um, you know, code base you could be contributing to in a way that can be educational and also um, accept, or not, well, that's the wrong word. But, like, if you're going to make a pull request, right, that you're going to be able to learn from it. Right, 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 right. right. Um, And also (laughs) that, yeah, that the interaction is going to be positive rather than negative. Right, right,
0: right. I think the, the use of the accepted there, it's that the pull request will go somewhere, I guess, yeah, That or, or at least you learn from the experience and yeah. can iterate and improve.
1: Yeah, and also mm-hmm. that you're learning, you know, that, that, like, the thing that you're learning is how to improve the code as mm-hmm. opposed to, like, you're learning, like, okay, that was the wrong place for me, right?
0: Yeah, and so it's, so something, I'm just, I'm always thinking when we're going through these episodes, what are the kinds of words that, a listener who doesn't have expertise might be confused by. And so pull request is one of, I think it's one of the funniest ones, because you're trying to kind of, you're pushing code. <laughs> you're like, you're adding code, you're or editing code in some larger code base, some open source project. It's interesting that it's called a pull request. Um, and and uh, yeah, so that's, I think there's, there's a clear etymology there. I mean, so I guess you kind of, you pull the code down. You have your own kind of little version. You make some changes, and then somebody approves that pull request that you made, and it ends up being pushed. <laughs>
1: right? Yeah, yeah. I didn't name it. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um,
0: terms yeah, of art. it's one of those terms that yeah. If, if you if you work in software, you think about it. You hear it all the time. Um, but it's it's a funny one when I think you try to break it down. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's cool. So that's write code. And there's another organization that, that you founded that's actually even older. So that you founded in 2009. So at time of filming, we're talking 12 years ago. And this is Hacks Hackers, and I love the name because <laughs> um, it combines together hacks, journalists, and hackers. So programmers. Yeah. And so it's your, the organization helps bridge those two groups, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, we've had a few different taglines over the years. Uh, originally, it was rebooting the future of journalism. Um, now, I think it's kind of easier to, e- easier to talk about it as um, it's an organization that brings journalists and technologists together to explore the future of journalism and technology. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so when we started in 2009, it was basically like, you know, the world was very, very different then. And a lot of journalists were just starting to think about like how you could really use the web and mobile apps to um, reach you know reach the readers, mm-hmm. uh, and there were a lot of technologists who were really interested in like civic uh, civic reporting, um, you know how the news as a medium can help to reshape uh, you know reshape policy and reshape like the world around them, both locally and globally. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but they they kind of wanted to connect with journalists to learn the learn the practice from them um as well as see how they could contribute um, their talents as well.
0: Cool. yeah, and it's a meaningful place to to be able to apply your talents. I'm not going to be able to dig up off the cuff off the cuff exactly the episode number, but there's a great episode not too long ago, maybe a couple of months ago with Anjali Shrivastava. And so she got started in data science through an interest in journalism. So she was a high school journalist and kind of des- describing the same kind of arc that you were describing probably many professional journalists experienced in 2009 was, hey, wow, I can use data for assisting my reporting. Tables of results can be really interesting for readers and make a story uh, quite tangible. And then, of course, the data visualizations can be really helpful as well. And we're seeing more and more and more newspapers having amazing visualizations for their online publications. Like the New York Times, they must have dozens and dozens, I don't even, maybe you have some idea, of the number of people who are just experts in data visualization over there. That's <laughs> <laughs> a lot. Many.
1: Yeah. yeah, but I mean, you know, speaking specifically about data visualization and journalism, there's actually like a long history that predates the internet. And there's, like, a bunch of talks online that you can kind of, you know, watch or read about, yeah, to kind of learn.
0: Oh, cool. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thing. I mean, I know, you know, I had this experience in elementary school of, I grew up in Toronto in Canada, and I can't remember the names of anything now, but from my school, we were able to walk in downtown Toronto, a city block, and there was this um, old school printing press on the corner. And so they had all the equipment there still available, and you could see how they did things. And so a century ago, every page of the newspaper, you had to hand-configure letters in a machine kind of upside down. (laughs) And those reversed letters in this machine could then be, they could get wet with ink and then press against a page, and you'd have newspaper pages. And so um, you just kind of alluded to there this change... So at that time, a century ago, presumably illustrations would be very difficult, if impossible, to have in that kind of format. But over time, I imagine decade over decade, you get more and more graphics, color graphics, and yeah, amazing data visualizations and newsprint that predate the internet. It's cool. All right, so Hacks Hackers, it's grown pretty big. So uh, from its founding 12 years ago, just a few of you, I imagine, maybe based in New York,
1: uh, where were we? We were kind of, oh my gosh. Distributed? We were kind of distributed, yeah. It, yeah, there were pockets of us, like, primarily all over the U.S. There was also a group in London as well, yeah. Right,
0: and I, I understand that that London group is particularly prominent globally, but there are 70 chapters on five continents worldwide now.
1: hmm mm-hmm. that's right. So it's really... Um, yeah, things have really proliferated, and of course, you know, times have changed, and the needs of the local organization have changed. Uh, so, um, I think the the interesting thing about being a part of an org- like an organization or a movement that's been around for like any length of time is to kind of see how it morphs um, in response to the world around them the current events and the needs and you know like just what people are interested in
0: yeah very cool Um. so yeah so two hugely impactful organizations that you co-founded Speak code and hacks hackers so it sounds like a common thread for you in your career has been developing communities and i've spoken on previous podcasts including on Number 511 with Drew Conway and number 501 with Jared Lander in detail about how useful uh, communities in New York have been for me for uh, for learning about open source software, for being able to speak, and for being able to find like minded people to work with me on learning about deep learning or learning about a programming language. And so it sounds clear that you, that, that would resonate with you. Um, and so yeah. How can do you have tips for how people could find their own community? So find people with common interests. How maybe if those people aren't around, how they could get started themselves? You haven't had any trouble getting organizations off the ground that have grown into massive international movements. Um, yeah. Tell us about about that. What are your tips?
1: Yeah. Well, I think um, the, there's you could start either like online and then go narrow, or you could start local and go big. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, So whatever works best for you. And I think that if you wanted to start like these days, you know, because social distancing is still kind of a thing and meetups are kind of, sort of, yeah, you we know. Yeah, not see
0: many meetups around in person. Exactly. Things, yeah.
1: Yeah. So looking online, I think, is probably the best uh, place to start. And, you know, Google's your friend, right? And so is Twitter, because uh, particularly for data science, like data science Twitter is like super, super active still. Um, if you're the kind of person who likes to search via a hashtag, the data science hashtag is. Very, very active. Of course, you're going to have to do a little wheat and chaff filtering. Um, but also, uh, there's a couple a few groups I kind of wanted to highlight um, for folks. Uh, Towards data science is a really great website um, where you can kind of find lots to learn from. Um, there's also a community uh, of folks who are kind of like in the towards data science world. Right. Um, so there's a website as well as a Twitter, um, handle, and then there's also the R for Data Science Learning Community, which mm-hmm. sprung from the book. Uh, I think it was R for Data Science, which was written by Hadley Wickham and I forget the co-author's name. I'm sorry.
0: We'll find it. We'll get it in the show notes.
1: Okay. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like, and they uh, their handle is R, the number four DS on Twitter. Um, and again, a terrific learning community is kind of grown from people being interested in the book. And then, you know, like recognizing that you get a lot farther when you have other people to learn oh, from. Yeah. Totally,
0: yeah, couldn't agree more. Um, those are great recommendations. I love both towards data science and the R for Data Science communities. Brilliant suggestions for listeners out there. Um, do you have a podcast recommendation for us?
1: Uh, there's a few. Um, so in terms of learning online for me, because I'm not a practitioner, like I kind of I listen to just be like, okay, what are people doing and what's kind of new out there? My absolute favorite podcast seems to be coming back to life, which I'm very very grateful for, and nice. it's called Talking Machines. Yes. Yeah, have you heard it?
0: Uh, I have heard it, and I I like it. I actually I must have listened to Talking Machines years ago before I ever dreamed of having a podcast that I'm hosting myself. And yeah, I think. It's a great podcast. Tell us a bit more about it.
1: Yeah. So the two hosts, whose names I can't remember, I'm sorry. Um, but there's uh, the there's there's a there's a woman and there's a man, and the woman as the co-founder, she uh, she knows a great deal. She's kind of like me, right? She's like she's really interested. She knows a great deal about it, but she's not a day-to-day practitioner. Right. Um, and so when she interviews people, she you know she's always getting fantastic guests. Um, Uh, But when she interviews people, she not only can ask them about very, very specific things, but also approach the subject with questions that are kind of from like the the beginner's mind approach. And then um, the male host, Neil, oh goodness, um, he is a professor at Cambridge, and I think also might have been like one of the the founder or the lead scientist at DeepMind. Um, so so this, is, you know, this is not only a practitioner, but this is one of the people who's sort of at the leading edge of, um, you know, of, of research and um, application that's right. yeah, being done in machine learning. And, uh, yeah.
0: yeah, it sounds like a great combination who are there talking about machines on the Talking Machines podcast. Uh, it makes a lot of sense to have that kind of deep expert combined with uh, somebody who can you know, say, what's the big picture here? You know, where's this leading? I love that. All right, so Chris, um, we've got your blog recommendations, your Twitter recommendations, your podcast recommendations. How about a book recommendation for us? Okay, I'm going
1: to give you two. (laughs) So, um, a really fascinating uh, uh, speculative fiction book I've been reading uh, is called Vagabonds, and it's by an author named, uh, let's see, Hao Jingfang. Yes. How Jing Fong with no tones. Um, it is. It it's from the Chinese science fiction world. Oh yeah. Yeah, and um, it's really hard to explain. But I think what I took away from it is how two different, two very different cultures um, kind of look at each other mm. and try to understand each other.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. Sounds uh, sounds useful in the world we're in today where we have, whether it's at a national level or an international level, yeah, certainly different cultures looking at each other (laughs) (laughs) in different ways.
1: Right,
0: right. Um, Very cool. So that's your fiction recommendation. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, And the nonfiction recommendation would be a book called Until Proven Safe. Mm. Um, The subtitle is The History and Future of Quarantine. Oh. Uh, Yeah. So it's like, it's very, very timely. It just came out in July, um, and it's by two writers uh, they're a husband and wife couple um, Jeff Mana and Nicola Twiley and i I've, I've met nicola a few times over the years and just as a journalist she is one of the most fascinating like research researchers who can also tell like incredible um, you know deeply researched stories um, and then Jeff runs, uh, I think he still runs, um, a website called BuildBlog. Uh, so if you're interested in architecture and, like, the stories behind architecture, like, that's Ooh. a great place to go. But, yeah, Man. they talk about quarantine, and it's just fascinating.
0: Interesting. Yeah, definitely a hot topic as well. Very cool. Well, it's clear, Chris, from the time that we've had together talking today, that you know a ton about... Data science, software development communities, and how to grow them, how to uh, how to foster them, and they then become these kind of these big international movements. So, if people have questions for you, or they'd like to follow you and learn more as your continue as your career continues to develop, how should they do that?
1: Uh, the best way is to find me on LinkedIn. So, which. You know, it seems to be like the place where all the data science people are, too. (laughs) So, (laughs) yeah, but feel free to get in touch.
0: Perfect. All right. We'll be sure to have that in the show notes as well. Thank you so much, Chris, for being the guest on this episode and for being open to having the first ever live filmed episode together uh, with a guest of Super Data Science. Uh, It's been a really nice experience. Thank you so much. Thank you, John. It's been fun. It was super cool today to have the experience of filming an episode in person with a guest. This episode with Chris paves the way for post-pandemic episodes that are filmed not only in person with the guest, but in front of a live audience as well. It's gonna be fun. In today's first ever in-person episode, Chris filled us in on how the K-pop music genre was deliberately created and funded by the South Korean government, and it has had a remarkable ripple effect across industries and across the world. Chris talked about how her Write, Speak, Code organization helps underrepresented genders in the tech industries to write public articles, speak to large audiences, and code for open source projects. She talked about how her Hacks, Hackers organization has helped bring large-scale data and data visualization to journalism. She talked about how you too can either find communities to get involved with or found them yourself. And she left us with her favorite resources for keeping on top of the latest in data science, including the Towards Data Science blog, the R4DS Online Learning Community, and the Talking Machines podcast. You can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the fun in-person video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, the URLs for Chris's LinkedIn, as well as my own social media profiles at superdatascience.com 515. That's superdatascience.com slash 515. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd of course greatly appreciate it if you left a review on your favorite podcasting app or on the Super Data Science YouTube channel. I also encourage you to let me know your thoughts on this episode directly by adding me on LinkedIn or Twitter and then tagging me in a post about it since this is a free podcast if you're looking for a free way to help me out i'd be very grateful if you left a rating of my book deep learning illustrated on amazon or goodreads gave some videos on my personal john crone youtube channel a thumbs up or subscribe to my free spam free and content rich newsletter on JohnCrone.com. to support the super data science company that kindly funds the management editing and production of this podcast without any annoying third-party ads you could consider creating a free login to their learning platform at superdatascience.com. Check out the 99 days to your first data science job challenge at superdatascience.com challenge, or consider buying a usually pretty darn cheap Udemy course published by Ligency, a Super Data Science affiliate, such as my own, Mathematical Foundations of Machine Learning course. All right, thanks to Ivana, Hyman, Mario, and JP on the Super Data Science team for being open to trying this new filmed in person format and producing this special episode today keep on rocking out there folks and i'm looking forward to another round of the super data science podcast with you very soon